So welcome to It's Not All About The Numbers, the leadership podcast that doesn't just focus on the bottom line. Hello, I am Chris and that is Mike. Hi everyone. And this week we have a fantastic co-host, Henry Fenby-Taylor, who's CEO of Athenophilia, Digital Sherpa and TikToker. Welcome, Henry. Hi, it's great to be here. Let's jump in. Um, so if you're enjoying what we're doing, if you're enjoying the podcast, then then do share and subscribe. And as I said in the past, those five stars really help. But let's kick things off. So gents, how have your how's your week been, Mike? I'll come to you first. Um, so this has been a week of kicking off new projects, which has been fun. It's a great, great start start to the year to have new bits of work. So I've been enjoying that. Um, I got invited in by um, one of the new departments of government, so DSIT, can't remember what it stands for, um, to talk about that one. Oh, go on, go on, Henry. On for Science, Innovation and Technology. Thank you very much. I thought it was that, but I wasn't 100% sure. But um, So that's been quite interesting. I've done a couple of workshops with them this week talking, basically, I've, I've realised I'm now old, and I'm talking to them about stuff I've done in the past that relates to projects that they're trying to do around data sharing now. So that's been quite good. Caught up with a few people, so been out with uh, some some mates and caught up. Uh, went out with a mate that I used to work with at the Environment Agency, um, and I've been tapping him up to come onto the pod to talk about mental health in a few weeks' time. So that that'll be quite good. Um, and I went with a mate from school to see Jonathan Pye. That was my kind of oh. um, thing. So I went to see Jonathan Pye in Bournemouth on Wednesday night, and it was exactly if you know who he is, it was exactly yeah. as you would imagine it would be. It was very very funny. The vociferous. Jonathan Pye. Yes. I love it. Excellent. I love it. I love the podcast. So what's what's the show like? Is it like the podcast or is it just him stand up or so so it's it's 95% scripted, I reckon. So there's probably five percent in there which is a little bit of ad libbing, but most of it's scripted and the, the, the kind of premise is he's introducing a get lads to vote campaign. Um, so the millennials don't really want to vote. So how does he get lads to vote? And and it, you can imagine straight away where it spins off into it's the it's all of the ranting bits joined together about different governments. So yeah, it's it's, it's a bit it's a bit you know if people haven't sort of seen or heard Jonathan Pike because I think it was on a on the radio first. It's a kind of like what new angry news broadcaster touch of Alan Partridge. A lot I, of swearing. I, yeah. I came across him first on Instagram. I I, I think yeah. I don't know if that's where he started, but he he would intro like he was finishing an interview with somebody or doing a bit to camera for the news, and then he'd rip his mic off, and yet we could still hear him. And then he'd have a rant about how bad the people. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Mean, yeah, make you feel. I first I first saw it on on YouTube, him on YouTube, it, exactly that. Um, it, he's, I think he's quite often on College Green outside the House of the Parliament with the, yes. the real political reporters. So it's quite funny that, you know, it, it's set up very, he's set up very much like he is a proper BBC political reporter, but he definitely is not. Well, that is definitely a hole that we're not going to go down, even though it sounds fun. Um, but Henry, how was your week? It's been a busy one. I have my diary in front of me. I uh, was at the Apollo Protocol Executive Board on Monday, which is about um, connecting digital twins, connecting data across sectors. Um, so that was good. And we we're going to issue a statement of support for some interesting projects. I am not drinking anymore, maybe not ever. So I've been replacing my life with exercise. So I've been going to Pilates at stupid o'clock in the morning 
um, a few times already this week and going to the gym more as a replacement for the 800 calories I was putting in. Wow. It's, it's very <clears throat> different. So, well, yeah. we will come into that. Let's come on to that for sure. Uh, there's a couple of things you mentioned there. Uh, one, drink, but also digital twins and the like. So we'll we come on to that. My week, uh, it was my birthday. So Happy ate birthday. Lots of, ate lots of cake. I, on the work front, had a great networking lunch, actually, at, at Home House, which is in the West End. And uh, I went, it's a lovely sort of old kind of club type uh, setup. And then I, I realized halfway through the dinner that I'd actually been there for a wedding about 15 years before when it was completely different. I thought your link was going to be to the drinking then, actually. I, I thought that was that was the link. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm, no I'm, I've actually been quite light on the drink as well, but I think we might come on to that in a bit. And then... You know, this isn't planned, Henry. This is uh, it's completely unscripted, as you can tell. But the the one great work thing I did this week, uh, which is good in my world, it, I went to the Global Excel Summit, <laughs> which is, you know, mm-hmm. a complete geek fest of uh, Excel, what are known as MVPs, um, Most Valuable Players, Partners, whatever. It's an Americanism for all of the great and the good who are supportive of Microsoft's product. And I have to say, I, I really enjoyed it. I'm always going on about how we overuse that tool and how we need to move away from it in in you know my world of accounting and finance and the rest of it. But when I saw the passion that people had for it, and it's ubiquity, probably more than anything. I thought, you know what, I'll I'll stop bashing it so much. But that was fantastic. I uh, really enjoyed that. Um, which leads me a little bit onto what happened this week, because there are a lot of finance people there, and a lot of people talking about Gen AI and incorporating Copilot into what they do. Um, and it's not not quite that, but there was a headline this week which um, stuck out like a sore thumb, which was. A company had lost 25 million after an employee was tricked with a deep fake of um, a colleague asking them to make a payment or several payments. And it turns out that this person had been attending a video call and they were in Hong Kong and the the CFO who was based in the UK was deep faked and asked them to make several payments. And the Hong Kong sort of police have sort of said that the scammers created these deep fakes with publicly available video of the CFO. I feel like this is an example of the 12 foot ladder. So for if you build somebody builds a 10 foot wall, you need to build a 12 foot ladder. And so, you know, the kind of truism that whatever a human build human being makes, somebody's going to find a way to subvert it. And it's only there's only going to be more of it. Well I, I, I would I would go straight to Everybody's had the emails from a Nigerian prince um, in their in their email inbox at some point, yeah. um, asking for money or asking for some something. Yeah. And I think that it, it kind of it's it's the same thing, right? It's like the technology's there, so people are going to try and use it to manipulate people f- and and get money money out of them. And we just got to be alert to it. I think. Yeah. Well, I mean, so absolutely, I do feel like. And it's easy to say this, as it's not happened to me, I do feel like I wouldn't have been sold that lie. But I'll, I'll tell you why. And I feel like this might be a hint towards the sort of behaviours that people need to do. Because this has all happened before with, you know, internet scammers and email scams and all that sort of thing. And it's often the least savvy people that are fooled. Um, mm. Not always, you know, savvy people get fooled as well. But as part of, if I were talking to the CFO, it'd be great. You know, I think this is a great opportunity to get to know them. 
if I didn't know them already, have a bit more of a chat, find out about them, and then yeah. maybe email them. I feel like I would have used that opportunity to get some personal information about them. I don't mean like in some sort of compromising way, but just sharing, you know, let's be people. I, I feel like if you are just people with the CFO and then you follow up with a great chat today email, I'll make, because you've got to put everything in writing as well, right? That's just good practice. Yeah, yeah. I, it's a fair point. I, I do think that there's clearly been a bit of a process issue here. And <laughs> when you read the article, the 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 person who was asked to make the payment did not interact with the deep fake. Uh-huh. So to your point exactly, they didn't say, oh, okay, boss, that's a, you know, an odd request. Yeah, do I need to get it signed off or whatever? Um, and a little bit of common sense, a little bit of wisdom, see where I'm going with this, um, might, you know, might help. And you mentioned that you're a you're a CEO of your, of your own company, Athena Philia, uh, which I hadn't heard of that word before. So I looked it up. Tell me a bit more about this and, and, you know, why you do what you do, what you're doing. Well, I invented the word um, because it exists. Yes. uh, But, you know, tried to get it out so that it would become that because uh, the classic love of a thing is the god of that thing plus the word philia. And, you know, there's a certain type of wisdom that I'm a big fan of uh, Greek mythology and there's a certain type of... uh, Athena was the god of... War strategy, would you say, or something like that? All sorts. Um, okay. <laughs> yeah, all sorts. Like Are you going many, to war? Like many of these gods, yeah. It was so, you know, you had a god of war um, who was the god of, like, rage and violence, and then yeah. you had the god of strategy, as you say. But she was also the god of uh, craft as well as and wisdom, like, in general as well. So I know, think... I've I've got to throw my brummy bit in there. Surely the god of posters in the 1980s as well. Nice, <laughs> That's quite niche. Yeah. Nice. If, does Athena exist anymore? No, no I don't think so. No. All as, I remember as a, as a store. No, there are two things that go together when I hear that word: Athena poster and then poster tennis player. And those of you old enough will yes. remember. I remember that. So yeah, so I started this company. Basically, I came out of a uh, research and development background in infrastructure sector. So I did a lot of my work there, but then have always had a passion for uh, marketing and communication and transformation. So effectively, the, the, the strap line of the company is research plus communication equals transformation. So the, you know, we do full on research because that's the stuff I love. So sometimes that's just uh, you know, the Femby Taylor review, the responsive infrastructure paper was assessing, you know, this new area of investment for the UK government, looking at where it could go, making recommendations, but doing the hard yards and speaking to lots of people. And I'm from that space, so I understood it very well. But then also this communication side is about how do we actually share this message? Because a lot of people don't know about the things that all the smart boffins are doing, sharing it with people outside of the little bubble that exists, but also when you're creating transformation, you need to be able to share the message and bring people along, along with you and have that conversation so that you you aren't just dictating. There's so many reports that have been written. There's so many strategies that have been drafted and there's so much stuff that's been created on the changes that are needed. Mm. Um, and I'm thinking, so the, the, the meetings I was talking about earlier, about it with DCIT this week again it's about another strategy there's another strategy for more data sharing so I'm really interested in in what is it that you think that you need to do and what is it that you do in that communication space to take those kind of like 
what I'm going to call dusty documents yeah. and turn them into actual change. So in those specific instances, it's not going to have a wide audience. It has a very specific niche audience. So that means networking and conferences and workshops and effectively kind of the uh, you know market conditioning sort of marketing in terms of we need to tell people how things could be done and what that would look like and understanding who this is for. What's different about this report is that it's about increasing increasing the trust in the evidence and making evidence-based decisions. Yes, that means data, but in, increasing the fidelity and the reality, the, the understanding of the real world that informs decision-making, which is one of the big problems for me. So it, it all pivots around improving measurement in infrastructure, in I, government. I imagine that that is quite a challenge though, right? Because these are fairly conceptual things that we're talking about you know ai you mentioned or did i mention digital twin even you know transformation generally you know the uh internet of things whatever they are you know they're all fairly big ideas um mm -hmm. and I, I came across it personally in my own work I, I was doing some consulting at siemens for the cfo and i came across digital twins there and this was about i don't know five five ten years ago and when someone explained it to me, I was like, wow, this is bonkers. You know, how, how are you meant to sort of invest and, and, and make change and get buy-in on this? So are you saying that you're, try you're basically trying to sort of make these things a bit more tangible so that people can back them? Yes, we need to make the conditions where one doesn't need to mandate a solution. So that's often the problem with things like IoT, IoT AI, digital twins, whatever it is. They are often implemented as solutions looking for problems, and that is just the wrong way to do it. And everybody who's ever succeeded in innovation knows this, and you're both nodding, which is a good sign. Um, <laughs> so yes. it should that is that is what this is set up to do is to create a system where if we require that under all your existing KPIs, all of these infrastructure owners and providers, water, uh, uh, national grid, um, transport, if we if the only requirement is that you increase the quality and that how they do that is left up to them, but they have to increase the quality of their data against their own metrics, that would create the, that is the slow push of the big boulder to start rolling down the hill. And that will naturally lead to a requirement for greater investment in innovative approaches. I really like that, but what I really like that about that is, is is to distill it down into actually there's a really simple message right in the middle of that which is we can over engineer what we think the solution might be we could spend months and months and months talking about building big solutions but what you're talking about there is how do you take the very very first small baby step on the path mm. and actually that first small baby step is about building momentum when you start building momentum, you will get to a point where a critical you reach a critical point where these things will just happen. The problem that I see, and I think that you're you're reflecting, is quite often we're looking too far ahead and trying to create a solution which we think is like magic, rather mm. than looking at what's going on right now and how do you take a small baby step from this point in the right direction. Yeah, because there's there's too much in the way right now because you have to. In the UK, if you're a government department, you have to procure using the existing existing procurement rules that aren't set up for you to change your mind. So if it turns out six months into an innovation project that that's ah, just not going to work, everybody's just going to keep drawing the checks and doing the work 
because that is what they were contracted to do and that is the way the procurement is set up. So you you have to work within the real world. I think that's one of the big mistakes that is made is that there's just, you know, somebody aims super, super high, which sells. And I understand that. But actually, we need to do some of the hard work first. You know, I was nodding a lot during what you were saying there. And then right at the start, you, you sort of talked about people desperate to buy technology and and push the technology and, and push that first. And, you know, Mike and I have talked a lot about sort of flipping the order of things. As, you know, we we actually want people to talk about technology last, not first. Because as you sort of said, we need to understand you know the the problems the kpis the the things that you actually want to do and then go on the journey uh, but for some reason there is a very human trait where we like going shopping we like going to buy stuff right and maybe some of the processes in government aren't set up for us to change and be agile but i think everyone whether it's business or whether it's government and and i'm more on the, the business side we just like going shopping for stuff yes and it can be very frustrating when people who are basically shopped for, you know, there is a uh, a BIM department, building information modeling or management or better information mo- modeling or management, depending on which particular side of the bandwagon you are on, that exist in lots of government departments. And they are very frustrated on the whole because they really struggle to leverage the things that they're bringing, which is about managing uh, information and files better and you know maybe doing something in 3D and maybe managing stuff over time they really struggle to get that sort of stuff done and make the make the case for it and there's a good example of, of where where you can see this sort of thing happening that was in the buildings client group which is uh, something that we kicked out of um kicked out of the span out of the um center for digital built britain where i was working we're talking about digital twins and we'd like a digital twin and that would be great it's a really difficult sell and then someone said, yeah, I was really struggling to sell it. And then I discovered that the company had actually built a digital twin about six years ago. And that's the problem because people are creating departments for specific innovations that are inherently time limited. You know, that there you don't see data departments where it's come down to the core. What's the real issue? You know, but we have accounting. We have human resources. There are all these data you know, this is data is the thing that crosses all of these boundaries and barriers. It shouldn't be going to into a specialist department. It should be something that is cross-cutting. It's quite technical. What you know, what you're talking about, and there's lots of you know uh, acronyms in, in what you're talking about as well. But you, we've talked about digital twin. Can we? Mm. Could you give me like a easy layman's definition of what a digital twin is? <laughs> It's very contentious in technical circles, and that's part of the problem because having a bun fight with other experts. There's no standard definitions, right? Doesn't help anyone. <laughs> well, yes, we did. We did create one in um, in uh, CDBB for a standard, uh, the Flex 260 standard that has since been rescinded. And uh, very recently, uh, there are two standards now uh, from ISO that have uh, conflicting definitions internally. It's the so, V8, the VHS, and the Betamax standards. Yes, I, I'm just going to tell you what they really are and could be because it's a broad church, and everybody wants it to be their thing. It is a better story for managing real things. If your real world business, if it's logistics, if it's um, consultancy, whatever it is, that is a real world thing that is happening, and the way that you manage that is with data. 
everybody manages it. Evidence, you know, you manage it with evidence. And that evidence is, is sometimes monthly, sometimes quarterly. You know, you have a report and everybody has a meeting and says, this is what's really happening. But digital twins are about bringing that evidence much closer to the right people, in my view, to make better decisions. So we are going to create those connections between what is really happening in the real world and what we are using to manage our business or government department or bus system or whatever it is. We're going to bring that evidence, that data, much closer to real time. So we are basically, we currently live in a world where we rely on reports and what we want to create is a world where we can respond as quickly as is necessary to changing circumstances, which means better decisions, um, better evidence-based decisions. And if things aren't working, you can also change direction quicker rather than this sort of super slow process yeah. that currently takes place. So there is a real thing, then there is a digital version of that. That's the digital twin. And they exist in every company. Sometimes it's in, a, in an Excel spreadsheet. You know, yeah. there is a digital version of that, but a real digital twin has this, you know, real on-time delivery of data between the physical world and the digital world. But thanks for that. I think one of the things, I think that will chime with a lot of people, but I think it's it's a fairly new term that um, that people are struggling with. And it's it's a bit like data and big data, right? It, it's like, I think a lot of people understand what a forecast is and, and how we go about forecasting things. But the digital twin is kind of this, this live forecast feedback system by the sounds of it. And one of the things that I came across when we were at Siemens was that basically, they're, they're, I think it was for the Olympic site or something, and they the new Olympic site, and they had created this digital twin of the city. This is the so, Paris one. I've, I've seen the Paris digital twin, the Paris. Wow. Okay. Paris Olympic one. So there is one for that. And, and the and the purpose of it was to sort of see how the city would operate, right? Yeah. So they could plan for infrastructure, they could plan for policing, crowd control, all this sort of stuff. So that and that's that, but that sounds super complicated compared to what I think people would understand as a as a, a forecast, and then you know it spitting out some exceptions, and then us um, us responding to it. Can you use them in business? Because I can see them being used in government and infrastructure and, and construction projects and things like that. But could you use them in business? Absolutely, and and they are being done. It's what you've described there. I think is sometimes like a lot of technology projects, there's a quite a lot of gold plating going on. People are asking for the gold taps and you, you know, you can have it in 3d, you can have geospatial, we can have real sunlight showing the shadows on our building, but does that, is that going to impact how we make decisions? Maybe not. There, there are real benefits from just bringing as much data as you possibly can into your system. And you'll be able to be like, oh, we hadn't realized that actually our supply chain is causing problems uh, with our warehouses because of the way that they uh, they deliver, and that's because of their supply chain. You know, there's something really complex. Yeah. You could get all of these valuable insights, but fundamentally, it's not the place to start because then you're doing the solution looking for a problem. This is so. This is this is fascinating. So I had a preconception in my head around digital twins, which I think links to how Chris was talking a moment ago, but actually. I've fallen into the trap, right? I've fallen into the trap of the gold plating thing, and actually, because actually, what you're describing, Henry, is it's almost like the the digital the digital twin is stuff that we're already doing. 
mm. but it's just being done in a different way. And actually, it, it could be as simple as how, how quickly is your Excel spreadsheet updating with real data? And then what do you do with it? It could be as simple as, I mean, if you're doing planning permissions or built, built you know, it could be the sunlight. Um, from yes. if you build a Where it's building, relevant building. decision-making. Well, the weather... It, links, it, it the, fundamentally the, the, links back to that outcome, right? It's like, yeah. what is the thing that we need to do? We need to be more uh, effective at delivering our letters and parcels. We need to be more... Make sure that there's enough sunlight on the trees in the local vicinity. Whatever that outcome is, you then build a digital way of uh, analysing that. And it's not just like, oh, we'll build a digital twin because what that will be is like Minecraft on my computer and I can just look at this like magic Minecraft world and live in it. It's not that. And no. I think that I, I'd fallen into that trap a little bit. You know, is it just a buzzword for forecast or is it something very different? I think it can be. I think it can be. And it, you know, people do use it like that. Um, there is a lot of gatekeeping around the term. Like there often are around these things, you know, that this is in, this is out. How dare you? And lots of, public feuds yeah. on LinkedIn and Twitter and stuff. Um, yeah. But fundamentally, for me, if you are using a digital system to make better decisions about the real world, using better evidence than you're using digital twins, the big caveat, the really big caveat, is how you use that data and what it's what you're collecting it for. Why are you doing this? So yes, it could be Excel, but ultimately you end up in a world where if you're trying to really create a, say, a digital twin of your whole business which i have seen done you suddenly are in a very new place so it's yep. a better story because a digital twin is like okay it's conceptually something that you can explain to somebody quite easily what is quite difficult to explain conceptually is now we need to make your timesheet system talk to your accountancy system talk to your logistics system talk yep. to your planning system talking to this other thing that this random department bought talking to this other random thing there is a lot of work a lot of data crunching to do um uh, that is a great segue as well to uh, our question and this, this keeps happening it's not it's not by design which is great but um so this section we, we ask people for questions and if people want to send their questions in then please send them to podcast at generationcfo.com who produces this or reach out to mike and myself and that that was a, a a lovely segue henry because you started to talk there about the sort of the realities and the value and the benefits of, of trying to do this and it's it's this is going to be a tough question to answer i think but the question was, how do you value the benefits of sharing data? And it's the sharing of data, I suppose, that is the key thing here. Well, I have some very strong views on this, and uh, I know Mike does too. There is some important context. There are two schools of thought. One hand, we have open data. Somebody's already paid for it. Just put it out there. Just make it available. And then on the other hand, uh, data is the new oil. I don't quite understand what it's for but it's mine and you can't have it. And the debate around data exists in the context of these two diametrically opposed positions. And in the responsive infrastructure paper, you will find a solution that is in the middle. Which, so I have actually given a lot of thought to this and collected a lot of evidence. Open data is great. And I think having a mechanism for innovators whether that's in a government department or you know somebody wants to start a new business or somebody internally in your company wants to try a new thing 
having data available to them to try new stuff is awesome. At some point, that data is going to be valuable in a pounds and pence or in a, you know, like somebody's willing to fund it sort of way. I'm not saying it has to have a financial value, but somebody sees impact from that money being spent. The way that a lot of data is created in the public sector around the world is project-based. It's academic or it's exploratory. So we found this cool way of measuring traffic. So we've set up these sensors. You're like, cool, I'm going to build a business out of that that makes the city navigation work better. And then four years later, the data source ends because they were funded for four years and the data fell over. And that for me is the, is the fundamental problem with taking a pure open data approach is that it just assumes somebody will pay for it in the end and we should just do it as a matter of principle. I've, I've got a, an example of that actually in, from my world, which um, m- might seem quite small compared to the government problems that you're trying to solve. But they um, there, were, there was an open data project effectively asking everyone how long large companies were taking to pay small business. And uh, I think it was called the Good Day, the Good Payer Project or something, and it was short-term funded. So everyone started to put their their numbers in, and there were a few headlines created because there were big businesses out there. I think it was Waterstones um, who were paying people so late it was potentially putting them out of business. And obviously, in small business communities, that's big news. Now, this the whole idea was to change behavior and to sort of help people get paid and 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 the right people to be paid, right? The small businesses struggle more, I would argue, than the, the larger businesses with cash flow. But then it ended because it was just one of those one-off projects, right? I've got the open data versus closed data take on this, but I've got another take on this as well, which is around costs and benefits. And I think that one of one of the things when talking about value of sharing data that that we we quite often fall down is my data is valuable i.e has a financial value i can associate with it so therefore if i give it to you for you to use you should give me something back because you're basically getting that getting that value and i think there's there's something in here around uh, around the valuing of sharing data which is the costs and the benefits so in the example that you've just described described there there chris the cost of that activity of, of sharing the data around payments was on the people that were making the payments. So therefore the, the, the big organizations that were making the payments, the benefits were accrued by the small businesses. So actually, if you take away the incentive and the, the you know, that, that push, of course they're going to stop doing it because they're getting no benefit from the cost they're expending on sharing that data. And th- there's just something in there about doing things. Do you value data sharing in financial terms or do you value it? because you're doing good it's the greater and, good isn't it? And, and and i think certainly in the government circles there's a real interesting question in there in there around this links back to some of the work that i've done previously where we'll share data because we'll share government data because it's all really valuable and if we share it as open data for free economic benefits will happen what that means is the data is free at the point of being reused by somebody. What mm. it doesn't mean is it's free to the organization that's sharing it. And quite often we ignore that bit. So share this because good things happen to somebody else. And I think that there's something in there around understanding the value chains and what value actually means, both in terms of good and money. Yes. One of the issue, issues that we've got, I think, is, is a financial one, which is we measure everything in financial terms. 
So it's all about economic benefit. It's all about tax returns. It's all about costs. So you can't bet, you can't measure you've just done good mm. and put it against, but it's cost us a million quid. A million quid for what? So Nothing. I, I, I figure you're saying it's not all about the numbers, Mike. Yeah. <laughs> oh, uh, he's in. Nice. He's in. It's a great point. And, but I do think even when you're – so to, talking about, you know, the, the, the who gains, you know, who gains, and, and, and does everyone have to gain for us to do these projects? I, I think one of the big issues is that nobody asks, and okay. there is just a, a, a supposition. Like Mike says, it's not necessarily – literally about the transaction because that data might reduce costs somewhere else in your supply chain and or add value make better decisions possible and you have to go into that whether it's about planning decisions um or it's about uh, the design of buildings the design and construction of buildings actually making better decisions is often worthwhile i, I do have a proposal which I, I I think it needs to be looked at in the round, and I think you need to have that evidence-led approach um, about benefits, but also knowing that you don't know in advance, which is often the mistake that large companies and governments make, is they assume that they can understand before they try, and you can't. Yeah. But ultimately, if something is of value, whatever that value means, there is a financial cost. And for example, with that data, why couldn't the Federation of Small Businesses of pick that up, pick that solution up, because their their members would benefit from that solution. That would have really helped them, and then they could point, talk to their you, talk to their members, and said, "What have you done for me lately?" Like, see this ongoing service where we name and shame the people that pay you the slowest, and also warn you of who not to work with. Yeah, how about that? How about them apples? So I feel like in that situation, if you prove a concept, you make it free at the point of use, but then if somebody was to you know basically create a a big business out of that or provide a lot of value, then if we want our data to last, that data source to last and continue, then they need to have a stake in it, but like in supporting it financially. I think what you what you've done there nicely is is you've created a very compelling vision for someone like, you know, the Small Business Federation to pick it up, right? But that where's that coming from? That's coming from the leadership of the Small Business Federation, right? Yeah, or federation of small businesses. So, you creating yeah. that compelling vision is is really important. But I also think there's there's a huge thing here about management, change management, right? Because yeah. you know, even if we're all on the same page, not everybody gains equally. You know, that yeah. one department might might gain, the other department might not. You know, we might have a redundancy over here, or even if everybody gains, you know, they're getting more gain than I I get. So surely this, the vision and the, and the change management is super important to getting any of this done. I can completely agree. I think that, that that's, that's actually the trick is quite often the pain is felt in a place that's different to the benefit. Um, and this, this comes back to there was a paper done, God knows how many years ago now about open data, which is if government released all of its data as open data, X billion pounds worth of economic benefit through the tax system would happen. And it's like, well, that's amazing. But X benefit through tax goes into Treasury, gets spent by government. It doesn't go back to the departments that are releasing the data as open data who, who are taking on that cost, because there mm -hmm. is a cost. And it's that, it's just exactly that point, it's that disjuncture between where the benefit is received and whether the pain is felt is quite often why these things, data sharing initiatives fail. I've got, I've got a really, I've got a, 
you just sparked a memory for me with and this goes back about god 15 20 years i used to play rugby with someone who worked in this U- in the uk and then left to go to uh, their home country uh, on the other side of the world and they were really worried when they were coming back into the uk that the border force were going to stop them from entering the country because they had unpaid taxes right <laughs> So if you were able to join the dots between unpaid taxes and border force, right, and at point of entry, ask them for a bill, yeah, you could get all of this unpaid tax from all of these, you know, sort of non-demicile, you know, overseas expats or whatever. And it was it was amazing because I was just like, that that's that's never gonna happen, right? This, this that is a great use case, but that's never gonna happen. Maybe in your country, because there's less people and less infrastructure and blah, blah, blah. Exactly. Yeah, so the tax farmers. man, in that example, the ta- if, if that, that did work, the tax man would be getting the money, but the border force would have to recruit extra people to be you know, issuing the invoices and making sure that people are paying and doing all of that. It, it, there's a, so the cost is in a completely different place. It's, not, it's not beyond us, though, is no. it? You know, no. But it's but, hard. But they don't know each other and they don't talk. And uh, that's part of the ecosystem problem is that there isn't an ecosystem because all of these things, you know, everybody's off in their own little silo doing their own their own thing and they can add yeah. benefits to the way that they are measured for their own direct benefits. But it's a lot harder to make these higher order things. These are higher order benefits. So that's why you need something that bridges yeah. all of these different opportunities. And and this is the Fenby Taylor report, right? Yes. By by another name. What's the full name of it? Uh, it's uh, um, the Responsive Infrastructure Report. Okay. So well, I've got I've got a little sarcastic question. So who other than you calls it the Fenby Taylor Report? Uh, you did. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Oh, well, I did earlier when I introduced it to and Chris. The, so. Yeah, that's three. Yeah. Yeah, so in fact, everybody on this podcast at the moment. So, yeah. so, so, <laughs> But but at least at least we've we've got the real name out there. So if people want to look at it now, they've Googled the right thing. Because I think if they Googled the Fenby Taylor report, they might get something else. Maybe maybe your TikTok channel. Uh, <laughs> yes, uh, I I think I only use that for the memes. Uh, <laughs> I feel like uh, I've yeah. had a slightly pivotal generational issue. Where I do, I have lived uh, my life online for certain periods of it, and uh, you know uh, I have to live with that, and I will do. <laughs> Excellent. Well, look. That was interesting, and th- thanks for your insight there. Let's get the agenda back on track because we went quite quite um, deep there, but it was a, it was a good one. We next go on to good data, bad data, which is just a, a way of rattling through a few things that we found this week, which may or may not be interesting in the data world. And uh, Mike, I'll throw it over to you first for some good. I've got I've got two bits. I'll do the I'll do the serious one first. Um, so the serious one was I saw an article where uh, talking about open data, where open data has reduced high crime impact in Mexico City by fifty percent, um, which I thought was quite interesting. Um, so in twenty eighteen, seven percent of residents in Mexico City considered it a safe place to live, which, amongst other things, the, the, one of the, way, the ways the government there wanted to in, introduce change was they introduced an open data policy, and that made all within reason public data available to anybody for them to do analysis and, and planning using uh, on. And a key outcome of that has been like multi-agency approaches to tackling uh, crime. So not just police, but also what are the causes of crime, such as uh, deprivation, poverty and things like that. So they can actually create these things called red, red zones that they then 
put focused activity into to resolving the causes of crime as well as crime itself. Um, and given that that, that first number, 7% of residents was 2018, so what, six years later, 43% of people now consider Mexico City a safe place to live. So the power of open data and data sharing in in, in, a, in a nutshell there. That's brilliant. Just linking, it back to, just linking it back to our previous conversation, it's very difficult to articulate the value of that, right? Back to that value question. Good has happened. People feel happy. It's a great place to live. But actually, it took a leap of faith to share the data. There was no direct benefit in terms of revenues or things like that. So it's just an interesting link then. And did you want my other bit of good data? Well, you know, it wouldn't be a, a podcast without having dogs in it. So, yeah, so, absolutely. So, for it. so um, I found a website via the thing, the, the um, social media platform formerly called Twitter, um, called johnrichtv.com. And in 2022, he produced a series of pie charts of dogs and um, the, the proportion of, of their body of the different things. So the one I've got on the screen here is a basset, basset hound, which is sort of like 30% ears, 30% body, 20% snout. And then French bulldog, which is almost... 60% body and then virtually no snout. And I just thought it was a, an interesting and kind of silly thing to look at. Body shaming dogs. It's outrageous, isn't it? Uh, I do, I, probably, I do like I it. I can get away with that though. <laughs> I do like it, but um, I have to say uh, never a pie chart. It should not have been a pie chart. There are much better ways to, uh, uh, to visualize that, but that's another story. Bad data. Well, Actually, this is this is potentially linked to our digital twin chat. Actually, so um, there was it, I don't know whether you, you're aware, but in San Francisco they actually have driverless taxis. Waymo is the the brand, and um, unfortunately this week there was a cyclist struck by one of these driverless cars. There seems to be a lot of tension around you know using autonomous vehicles, um, even though they've been used sort of quite a lot there. Um, but I, I, I couldn't help but feel a little bit sorry for the technology um, because when I started to dig into the, to the stats, just in the UK, right, there are over 20,000 um, bike road traffic incidences uh, a year. 4,000 of them are serious. But obviously, as soon as the, uh, the Waymo driverless taxi gets it wrong, which which fortunately wasn't serious. They were injured, but wasn't serious. The whole world comes down on on the technology. So, are we giving autonomous cars a, a bit of a hard time? And I, and I think this is an example of the digital twin, right? Because is the digital twin getting it right um, in this instance? Because the cars kind of moving in the forecast world of the digital twin. Well, they are. It's a good question about what. Are they making their decisions based on because they are making decisions based on what is immediately in front of them? So they aren't making a decision based on traffic movements. They aren't make as in wider traffic movements beyond what their navigation system already knows. They won't make decisions based on is the school nearby opening and there will suddenly be loads of children on the street or being you know in San Francisco less likely on the street, but certainly lots of parents and cars appearing, or maybe those school buses, you know, all these sorts of things will happen. There is this, it, it's myopic, very short-sighted 
a lot of these systems because there's mm. been a lot of other problems with, in, in San Francisco about these driverless cars getting stopped for fun uh, or uh, having problems in adverse weather conditions and stopping the trams. Um, right. There's been all sorts of problems. So yeah. I think the the problem is is that they aren't a they aren't connected to a digital twin. So there's there's no system saying, oh, there seems to be a problem. We seem to have 35 of our vehicles stuck at one junction, which I don't think it was 35, but a lot of their vehicles, uh, they they got self-jammed, as in they wouldn't move and they were waiting for the other vehicle to move, but it was another one of them. So that didn't move right. either. And then you created this kind of cascade effect. Wow. Uh, yeah. Are we? Do you think we're being a little harsh on them though? Because the, the you know the technology is phenomenal, but when you dig into the numbers, it seems like humans are pretty bad at this as well. Who do you sue? Who do you sue? That's my question. Who who goes to court? Who is accountable? So that's so that's so so. There's definitely that question, um, and there's the you know is it the owner of the taxi, the programmer of the software? the owner of the sensor, blah. But I I also do think, to your question, Chris, to some degree, I think we're giving them a bit of a hard time. To some degree, it's almost pointing at something new and and, and shaming it to some degree. Um, For most technology, you go through this initial cycle of not really being sure about it. I think the more fundamental question is, should we, should, and I think we've talked about this before, should we be creating fully autonomous cars at all? Is is maybe a different question, and I because I think quite a lot of lot of the other uses other than taxis is is much more you drive along in them, but actually the humans have still got to have some kind of input. And I think we're just a long way off moving back to to Henry's point about who do you sue. In that context, if the autonomous car is driving and you still have an input, you would get sued if something something went wrong because you should have taken over in in a given scenario. So I just think there's just some just, just so much more to this than a simple question. I'm afraid. Sorry. Bad. Well, that's that, that's a, that's a wrap. I think we'll call it there. Um, thank you very much today, Henry. How can listeners get in contact with you if they're interested in everything from your podcast to your report? So they can find me on uh, LinkedIn if they search for Henry Femby Taylor. So that will be spelt in the podcast correctly. Um, uh, find me on LinkedIn or look up Athena Philia, which will also be there. So there is uh, links to all of that stuff. And yeah, look forward to hearing from people and, and hearing what they have to say. And you can always come check out the Digital Twin Fan Club podcast where we talk about all things digital twins. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah, we make sure that your name is spelt properly in in the podcast hopefully uh note to self uh, thanks very much for today um that's a wrap we have uh you know if if you are interested in joining us if you're interested in in um getting in contact with us then once again it's the podcast email podcast at generationcfo.com or reach out to mike and myself um and uh, just a quick uh, shout out this week to say that next week we have a special a special out and about in the field maybe in a field so uh listen listen up for that mike and myself probably out with the dogs um doing something a little bit different so um yeah that's coming up next week but anyway thank you uh henry really appreciate all of your input today uh thank you mike thanks everyone and remember it's not all about the numbers no it's not